Welcome to the podcast. You're still running your business on QuickBooks? More like quicksand. The bigger your company grows, the faster you sync with outdated software. Right now, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program. That's special financing at netsuite.com slash technews. netsuite.com slash technews. This is your tech news briefing for Monday, May 3rd. I'm Amanda Llewellyn for The Wall Street Journal. The tech titans Apple and Epic Games will be battling it out in court proceedings that begin today. Epic, the maker of the massively popular video game Fortnite, is accusing Apple of anti-competitive behavior in the way that it operates its App Store, an allegation that Apple vehemently denies. We're expecting to hear from both companies' CEOs during the trial, and its outcome could have a significant impact on the tech sector. Our Apple reporter Tim Higgins will break down what to watch for after these headlines. A SpaceX capsule carrying four astronauts returning from the International Space Station splashed down safely in the Gulf of Mexico early on Sunday after 168 days in space. The splashdown marked the end of SpaceX's first operational round-trip mission to the ISS and the first nighttime splashdown for NASA astronauts in decades. The Chinese-owned social video app TikTok is getting a new CEO— Shou Zichu, who currently serves as chief financial officer of TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, will add the position at TikTok to his current responsibilities. You might remember that TikTok has attempted to distance itself from its Chinese roots after it became the center of a geopolitical standoff between the U.S. and China. But Chu's appointment is being seen as a pivot from that approach, and it cast doubt on efforts to put parts of the company in U.S. hands. And the European Union charged Apple with antitrust violations on Friday, saying the company squeezed rival music streaming apps by requiring them to use Apple's in-app payment system to sell digital content. The case stems from a complaint from Spotify, which competes with Apple and music streaming. EU regulators also say Apple, quote, distorted competition by limiting how app developers can inform users about cheaper ways to subscribe outside the app, a method that would sidestep the commission that Apple takes. In response, Apple took aim at Spotify, saying the company has been successful even after removing paid subscriptions from its iOS app. In the past, the company has defended its commissions and said it wants competing apps to thrive. Apple will have a chance to argue its case before the European Commission renders a decision. The news comes as Apple is facing a similar battle in the U.S., this one against Epic Games. We'll have more on the trial that begins today after the break. You're still running your business on QuickBooks? More like quicksand. The bigger your company grows, the faster you sync with outdated software. Right now, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind financing program. That's special financing at netsuite.com slash technews. netsuite.com slash technews. We've talked on the show before about developer fees. Those are the commissions, usually around 30%, that app store owners take from purchases made through their marketplaces. Some developers have pushed back against these fees, saying they're too high, while store owners like Apple and Google have argued that the fees are necessary to keep transactions secure. This debate is the subject of a court battle between Apple and the creator of Fortnite, Epic Games, which kicks off today. 
The outcome of the trial will have ramifications for Apple and the rest of the tech giants. So for more on this, I'm joined by our Apple reporter, Tim Higgins. Hey, Tim, thanks for being here. Thank you. All right, before we get started, we should note that the Wall Street Journal's publisher, Dow Jones, has a commercial agreement to supply news through Apple services. Okay, so Tim, can you remind us how we got to the trial that starts today? There's actually quite a dramatic backstory here, right? Yeah, this is a a clash of the titans, if you will. Uh, It it goes back to last August, and the uh, creator of Fortnite, Epic Games, um, surprised a lot of people um, with an update to the Fortnite game on the Apple App Store that aimed to create a, a payment system that would get around Apple's payment system that allow users to go into an Epic Games-created pay system. And that was a huge violation of Apple's rules, and it resulted in Fortnite being booted from the App Store. And what uh, followed was a pretty big legal battle that we now are seeing uh, take place in a courtroom in Oakland, California. And so as the court case kicks off today, like you said, in Oakland, what's really the central question of this case? What is this all about? Yeah, well, there's a few things going on here. Um, Epic feels that Apple is using um, its power in an anti-competitive way. Specifically, they argue that um, Apple has this uh, delivery device or distribution device for apps on iPhones and that it's 100% controlled by them and that that is a monopoly in a bad sense and that they're misusing that power. So what this case comes down to in a large way is the definition of what a market is in the digital age. Apple takes a much broader view of the marketplace, one in which the App Store is just one of many ways for Epic to distribute its games to players. They would point to uh, the Sony PlayStation or personal computers or even even your web browser. They don't feel like um, they are harming the consumer. They feel like they are helping the consumer. So now it's up to each side to convince a judge of their perspective. How are we expecting them to go about that? It's it's going to be a lot about what that market is. Um, we're expecting the trial to last a month. Um, it will be presented to a federal judge, and that that judge um, will rule on the case. There's no jury um, here. So what we're going to see in the early days of the case will be Epic laying out its argument, trying to make the case that Apple is a monopoly and why it's harmful. Um, We're going to see kind of a battle of uh, experts between the two companies trying to lay out their views of what the marketplace is. And then we'll hear from Apple as it defends itself. One of the unique things about this case is that we're going to hear, or most likely going to hear, from some of the key players Epic's co-founder and CEO, Tim Sweeney, is expected to take the stand. Apple CEO, Tim Cook, is expected to take the stand. And that's really a rarity uh, in these sorts of things. And so there will be a lot of attention, especially when Tim Cook, um, if he does take the stand, as we expect. Those will be some of the highlights as we go through this trial. So we talked a little bit earlier in the show about regulators in the EU issuing charges against Apple on Friday around some of these same concerns with how it operates its app store. Could that have an impact on this case? The two are both examples 
of what's going on around the world. And that's kind of a, a broader concern about online platforms and digital commerce that really are facing scrutiny from courts, regulators and lawmakers. The EU case um, has a lot of similarities with what's going on here in the States, but this is really going to be one of the the first bites at the apple, no pun intended, um, for the U.S. court system in in this kind of new era. You know, the idea uh, of antitrust cases touching on these kind of so-called closed platforms um, is not new. We've seen huge cases in the past, Microsoft, uh, Kodak, but in the kind of this modern digital economy, experts say this is really fresh ground. The judge um, has even kind of talked or signaled from the bench kind of her thinking. Uh, on one hand, um, she seems to have shown some sympathy for the, the idea of what Apple is saying, that there um, is a video game industry and lots of ways uh, for video games to be distributed. But she seemed to have said, no, you know, maybe there's something new or novel here in what Apple has done for the broader app community. And her court, the region of the country that she's involved in, uh, lots of these kind of issues come up because it's Silicon Valley and they're kind of on the cutting edge. And so there's lots of people in the antitrust world and that are going to be watching this case very carefully to see where the kind of arguments are and where things might be going in the future. Yeah. And looking to the future, what's the significance of this case? What could the outcome mean, not just for Apple, but for big tech more broadly? For Apple, if they were to lose, it could be a major blow to what's become in a lot of ways a pillar of their company. They make a lot of money from the app store and they have a lot of control over how that app store operates. That's part of the way they market it. That's the way they operate it. And if some of that control was to change, that would be a a big development for the company. If Apple wins, it could make it harder for other app developers out there to challenge Apple's kind of grip on, on this space. Uh, it could have a chilling effect. I've talked to some lawyers out there who think that there could potentially be other ways to uh, kind of go at Apple, that it wouldn't close that door all the way. But it would clearly be a blow against that kind of movement, and which is part of the reason why we're seeing some app companies out there who have problems with Apple take their fight to Capitol Hill in Washington, advocating um, for changes in a law that would uh, seek to give them some relief. So what Apple is in the middle of right now is a global battle royale, if you will. They are fighting Epic in a courtroom in Oakland. Uh, They are in Washington facing some of their longtime, in some ways, partners uh, who are pushing for change. They're facing some attacks in Europe and around the world. And so this is a a multi kind of prong effort to uh, kind of change the way Apple does business. Apple would argue that it has done nothing wrong and pushes back very strongly on this notion that they're anti-competitive. They argue that they have spent um, a lot of money to create the App Store, that it provides the user with um, security and ease and is creating a lot of value. And a lot of value has been created for developers who operate in it. And so even the judge 
in this epic Apple lawsuit has said that this is going to be just a fascinating trial. All right. That's our Apple reporter, Tim Higgins. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. That's it for today's tech news briefing. You can find more tech stories on our website, wsj.com. And if you like our show, please do rate and review us in your app store. It really does help. I'm Amanda Llewellyn for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for listening. Keep listening to our weekly episodes to find out more. To all my fellow nerds out there, may the fourth be with you. Hey, Sherry, what is going on in a celebrity galaxy far, far away? Well, HK, the Tristan Thompson drama just won't end. Wait till you hear what Khloe Kardashian just did. And did Mark Wahlberg just join the dad bod club? We'll explain later. Plus, I've got a baby report for you, and you will not believe these pics. Heidi and Frank will join us later. So, Sherry, what you got? Gary, this was a shocker. Billionaire Bill Gates and his wife, Melinda, announced that they're divorcing after 27 years of marriage. 27 years and they're divorcing. 27. Look at you, Charles, be Spanish. had to do it in Spanish. That's a long time. Now, the Microsoft founder is estimated to be worth around, listen to this, y'all, 100 Thirty billion dollars. All right, oh, y'all have like, They released a joint statement which said, in part, "We will continue our work together at the foundation, but we no longer believe we can grow together as a couple in this next phase of our lives. We ask for space and privacy for our family as we begin to navigate this new life." Now, Melinda yeah. filed, and the court docs say that the marriage was irretrievably broken. No spousal support is needed and with no prenup they are dividing assets according to their separation agreement and you have to imagine at this point in the game too that melinda's dms if she has them has to be flooded (laughs) at this point yes (laughs) i have dm melinda multiple times i'm in that woman's dms trying to get with her are you kidding me chewy would you like to give her your instagram handle so she can put you in primary so she can actually see your dms yo melinda mommy it's at chewy martinez c-h-u-e-y martinez i cook clean lay down pie I just need kicks and PS5. Sometimes, Chewy, it is better when somebody co-signs for you. So, Melinda Gates, I know you're going through a rough time right now. If you're tired of that Microsoft penis, holler at my boy Chewy Martinez. He's a good dude. He lives in California. He can make it happen. Brad, could you co-sign for me from Melinda? Could you please tell I'm available since HK didn't co-sign for Chewy? Can you let her know? I will tell her. I will tell her, honey. (laughs) If you want something sweeter than a bed, Y'all call me Sherry. <laughs> okay, y'all. Well, last week we talked about Tristan Thompson's alleged mistress, Sydney Chase. Oh, she went Whoa. public after their involvement, right? Uh-huh. Well, y'all, now Sydney has shared DMs that she received mm. from Khloe Kardashian. Oh, <laughs> that's right. The main wow. chick messaged the side chick. Oh, now most of wow. Khloe's message was hidden, but it ended with, I would appreciate if our conversation can remain confidential. So much uh, for that, because obviously right. that Damn. didn't happen. Uh-huh. Now, Gary, do you think Chloe did the right thing by messaging the side chick? 
Let me tell you something. Miss Chloe might sleep black, but she sure ain't acting black. Ain't no way in hell no. I would call that woman or uh, said nothing to her, girl. You <laughs> yeah, yeah, unbothered, honey. You don't do nothing like That's that. That's right. right. Yeah, you never right. call a side chick. I feel for Chloe so bad for her because it, you you can't. You saw the girl. We looked at the girl on the tape, and we she just started an OnlyFans. She thirsty. Right. This news is good for her. If I was Chloe's friend, I'd have been like, girl, don't freaking call the side chick. It's hard to walk away when you and it's hard for Chloe, so I'm not mad at her on that point. I have a problem with Gosh. that. If it, even if I am matized, okay, and I take one cheat, that uh, second mm. cheat, honey, the third cheat, I'm out of that hypnotism, <laughs> okay? Okay. And Brett, we from Chicago. You remember? You remember when you used to have side? It would it be some mess. You get your girlfriends to roll up in the car on the you, other that's person. Right. That's the that's way right. we you used to do. We wasn't no messages. You outside her house. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. You just handle exactly. the business. You just handle. You get you, your girl. We had nobody else talk to you. We all pulled up and we discussed Thank it you. and dealt with you. Damn. Damn. Chloe, you, Chloe, Chloe, you got nineteen. Yep. You got nineteen sisters. Love you, Sydney. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> all right, another action star has joined the dad bod club. Y'all, yesterday we talked about my buddy Will Smith putting on a few pounds. Well, now Mark Wahlberg has done the same. He gained 20 pounds, y'all, for a new wow. movie. And he shared some pictures of the before and after effects on the gram, all right? Oh, wow. And I quote, he said, from left, photo three weeks ago to this. Now, thanks to at Chef Lawrence D. Cooking. <laughs> I love it, y'all. I love Wait, it. Oh, my God. This dude looks insane. It looks like somebody threw this. His wife, Rhea, replied, and it looks just as hot in person, baby. Oh. No. Just like they had that muscle suit. Remember the silicone muscle yep. suit they were selling? Yep. Yes. yes. The silicone right. fat man suit. Yeah. He gained weight and color. But HK, since his wife likes it, do you think he should keep it? Hell no. You are Marky Mark. You based your whole <laughs> life and career of being Hello. in shape and kicking ass. Man. I yeah. am trying to picture Calvin Klein spitting over that new body. It ain't gonna work. Ooh, Them Calvin Klein underwear? Ew. Can't do it. Not Calvin Klein. Can't more like it. Duncan Hines. He can model for Duncan Hines. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you guys uh -oh. are ready because I have a Porsche's baby report. Congratulations are in order for Erica Minner and Safari, honey. Erica oh, made wow. the announcement on Instagram. She posted a solo shot with the caption, Yes, for the third time. This time, y'all gonna give me my credit. Thirsty Safari joined in some thirst trapping with... <laughs> Marriage, it's not easy at all, but having a family of your own makes up for it all. Aww. Then Safari replied, I love you, my beautiful wife. Thank you for being the glue to our puzzle. And if that Aww. wasn't enough, she also showed off her baby bump and a blazing bikini, honey, saying, I hope y'all don't mind getting all this belly this summer. Yes, honey. Mm, now, Sherry. What do you, you think about it. these edgy, sexy, fierce pictures, honey? You know, it's so surprising. I love the pictures. They're so sexy. That's the way you do it when you feel it good. But I just remember Safari, we talked about this when he said he wasn't turned on by nah. her being pregnant. Y'all remember that? And we yeah, were talking yeah. about it because oh, she was so hurt. Yesterday. I'm glad they worked it out. She looks beautiful and sexy and congratulations, to girl. The both of I think it's the fact that he's so turned on when she's not pregnant that that's how we keep up ending here with the babies. Like, it's <laughs> quarantine, but he's spending a lot of time in the outback. <laughs> All right, Frank, now, I hear Victoria Beckham, honey, is doing something crazy. 
That's right, Gary. We all know Victoria Beckham as Posh Spice and a fashion icon, but she's also a tooth hoarder. Yes, her daughter Harper, who's nine years old, lost a tooth. Victoria you know, talked about it on her Instagram story. Heidi, you want to read the quote? I've got another tooth to add to my collection. What do all the mummies and daddies do with all the collected teeth? I've got an entire bucket full of all my kids' teeth. <laughs> do, you like, mm, do you like her more that she's just like collecting her kids' teeth? Just I like, like her more to play the part of the witch in Hansel and Gretel. <laughs> With a woman who has a bucket of children's teeth. Yeah, but she's a mommy. She's, you know, it's like, oh, those are her babies. I know, but usually when you have kids and you get their teeth, it's like, okay, these are the first kid's teeth, second kid's teeth. You, like, separate them, even if it's, like, in, you know, like like a pillbox. Oh, right, It's like, right. oh, those are those teeth, but you don't put them in just one giant bucket yeah, together. Like, I remember my mom, um, my whole life, she had the, the baby picture of me, like that center picture, and then she had my baby shoes bronzed. That sat like on the base of the picture, and I thought those were your dad's old work boots, like <laughs> your very last pair. I mean, you really had some big. I baby did have feet. some big, some big feet, but she would put my baby teeth in those shoes. Wasn't that your nickname growing up too? Was bucket of teeth? <laughs> You'd smile and be like, she just have rows of teeth. It's like, look at old bucket of teeth over here. I didn't know you knew that. How would you find that out? You've been Googling me? Yeah. Asking high school enemies <laughs> about me? <laughs> All right, well, coming up, we've got more dish that you can sink your teeth into. Oh, you see what I did there? After the break. Dish Nation. Dish Nation. All right, y'all, welcome back. <laughs> so y'all if i was this girl i would be so pissed at my damn self okay a tiktok user by the name of naveen J missed out on a possible date with one of hollywood's most eligible bachelors mm. ben affleck mm. all right seems mm. both ben and naveen matched on the dating site raya but naveen thought she was being catfish and she unmatched herself from Ben. Well, Ben Affleck did not give up easily. He found Naveen <laughs> on the gram and he DM'd her a video message. Mm. Y'all gotta check this out. Naveen, why did you unmatch me? It's me. I don't, I'm not the biggest Ben Affleck fan for dating him because, you know, he has his issues. I don't like what he did, what he did to Jennifer Garner or Jennifer uh, Lopez. Jennifer I Garner. Like that. However, I have to say, in this video, he's giving me kind of some sex appeal. Skin looking fresh. <laughs> he looking healthy. Really? I don't think he done hit the bottle <laughs> in a while. He's looking pretty handsome on <laughs> here. But, Portia, do you feel like it was kind of a sucker move for her to post the private video that Ben sent? Yes. Because, like, I wouldn't want to yes. reach out to it now because, you know, you know, he knows that she could put him on Front Street at any moment. Exactly. He'll she never come it. back yeah. now. Ever. He DM'd her that video to see if she was going to be able to keep it on the low. She proved to him, no, I cannot. I'd rather mm. get the likes. I think Ben Affleck knew exactly what he was doing when he DM'd this girl. She's a cute girl, you know, and I think when he DM'd her, he knew good and well it was, she was going to put it out. It makes the sexy factor go exactly. up. Exactly. A lot. So I think he knew exactly what he's doing. Sherry, do you know the effort yes. it takes for a celebrity to put their face on video and send it to somebody? Mm -hmm. Now, if it was just, okay. you know, Gary mm. sending it to somebody, you know, yeah. it is what it is. <laughs> okay. Wait a minute, but it don't takes a lot for a real celebrity to put themselves out like that. Mm. I don't know what Gary's video would say if he was DMing somebody. Why? Why you ain't calling me back? 
Uh -uh. All right, well, guys, Suge Knight's crew is spilling all of the tea. So former Death Row Records producer Kurt Cobain is claiming that Suge and Holly Berry used to link up for a smashing good time. What? Wow. And he's not just all talk. According to Kurt's interview on The Art of Dialogue, the producer said he has proof. Listen to this. There was love letters from Halle Berry that I seen those love letters. But I had seen Holly Berry at the studio. I just never knew who the hell she was there for. I oh, believe it. Wow. Well, right. Makes sense. Do you believe it, y'all? Every yeah. good girl always wants to be with the bad boy. It's just yes, something about yeah. it. You do it they in do secret. It, yes. it happens to the best of us. Do you want that thug life? Then you go to church on Sunday. <laughs> and Suge could have any woman he wanted, and he mm -hmm. probably had almost yeah. all of the ones he wanted. Trust mm -hmm. me. What do y'all think these love letters were saying to Mr. Suge, baby? I love the way you wear red. I was hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I think it said, make me feel good. Make me feel I'm good. I'm telling you. So I got a deal for you. Want to give your skin the deep clean that it needs with the Brookstone Pore Suction Vacuum Cleanser? This device is safe and effective for your pores, and it's also suitable for all skin types. Wow, and also tightens and brightens your skin. And I love their power pore suction feature that removes black heads <laughs> and dead skin while cleaning all in dirt buildup. Suck, suck, suck away, sir, because this deal includes one pore cleanser and four replacement heads and it's also lightweight and portable, so you can take it with you anywhere. Now, everybody needs one of these. How much is it? Now, this deal right here usually runs for as high as $40, but for our dishes and dish sets, it is only $19. Oh, that's a great deal. Go to com and tell them Dish Nation sent you. Up next, it only took 30 years, but Jason Patrick and Kiefer Sutherland finally dished about their pretty woman love triangle. We'll explain after the break. Dish Nation. Hey Heidi, hey Frank. All right, so what are you spilling today? Well, here's what I want to do, Sherry. I want to. I want all of us to jump in the time machine. I want us to go back oh. 30 years. I want us to go back when Julie Roberts was engaged to Kiefer Sutherland, but just before the wedding, he ran. She ran off to Ireland with uh, Kiefer's best friend, Jason Patrick. Ooh, Does everyone ooh. remember that? Or just mm. me? Yes, uh, completely just, just remember. Just you, Heidi. Yes. You're the only one. Well, um, that did happen. I remember being such a big deal at the time, and the co-stars of Lost Boys and uh, Best Friends at the time, anyway, mm. are addressing this love triangle side by side on Michael Rosenbaum's podcast, Inside of You. Take wow. a look. That was a difficult time for me, and, and I think it was an uncomfortable time for both of them. Um, but look, honestly, the truth where I'm coming from, you fall in love, you fall in love. There's nothing you can do about that. And, and she's an extraordinary person, and he is too. And, and you know, timing is what it is, and... You know, everybody moves on from that. Now, Yo. Sherry, it's been it's been thirty years. Um, do you really think Kiefer forgave Jason? You know, maybe maybe men are different, Heidi. I'd love to hear from Trudy and Frank, because let me tell you something. Yeah. Hmm. If, if I'm supposed to get married to somebody and you take her away 30 years later, I'm like, Heidi, Oof. if I still see your face at the mall, yep. it's going to be a problem mm -hmm. in the bathroom. <laughs> I'm wow. with you with that, Sherry. Yep. I'll hate you forever. <laughs> I'm telling you, you have completely betrayed your girlfriend. 
What about you guys, Frank and Chewy? How do you how do you feel when I tell you this story? Um, everybody's dead. Um, again, I'll probably be locked up and be doing fifty to life. Everybody's dead. Everybody's dead. Everybody's dead. Executive producer and director of the hit show Pose, Janet Mock, left co-stars, network bosses, and reporters stunned at the show's premiere party. Yes, reportedly during her 15-minute speech, she complained about the network's mistreatment of the trans community, Whoa. her low paycheck, name-checked, posed creator Ryan Murphy, and oh. shouted, Hollywood! Oh, what? And that's not all. That's all. Right. Then she oh, asked her boyfriend, who was there, to stand up. Honey, please stand up. And revealed that she <laughs> cheated on him and slept oh. with someone on the show's crew and asked him not to leave her over the infidelity. What? This is in one speech? Whoa. Yeah. This sounds like happening? an episode of Maury. Uh, this just tells me that somebody's allergic to something. Yeah, She's I like, think... I knew I shouldn't eat carrots. I blacked out. I have no idea what happened. I said, <laughs> Hollywood. I, I'm sorry, honey. So what is that, Frank? <laughs> Blame it on the c-c-c-c-carrots? Is that what that is? Yeah. <laughs> Blame it on the carrots. I, was like, I, I don't know what's going on. That does seem like a blackout moment. Like, what yeah. happened there? <laughs> so, oh, God. Jay Leno what? is back with a new show called You Bet Your Life. And he's looking for fun, interesting, and outgoing contestants from across the country, and they will fly you to L.A. if chosen. So here's Jay with more details. Hi, everybody. I'm Jay Leno. I'm hosting the classic game show You Bet Your Life. Want to be a contestant? Go to YouBetYourLife.com and sign up. So have some fun and win some dough. Nation. Welcome back, everybody. Hey. Well, you guys, Jessica Simpson recently went on the Drew Barrymore show and revealed that after divorcing Nick Lachey, it was hard for her to date. Mm. Male celebrities were listening to their publicists and they were being told to stay away from Jessica or they'd never be respected as a musician or an actor if they were dating wow. her. Can you believe that? The last thing about Hollywood is that publicists are the matchmakers of Hollywood. Right. Yes. So in this case, I don't think the publicists regret that. I think the people who had an option of dating Jessica. When Jessica's publicist called their publicist and said, hey, you know, she'd really like to go out with so-and-so. And they're like, no, don't do that because of this reason. You're like, what'd you do? If I'd have known I could get my publicist to do that. Sherry, that's how they do it. Like, like, I'm so low-level, Chewy. Your publicist would call TMZ and say me and you were having lunch together or dinner and we were stepping out of the restaurant and TMZ and camera crews were there taking pictures of us and they would sell that to the tabloids. That's what they do. That's what if they I do. If I would have known that, works. Chewy, I would have had you been over a table like way, way a year ago. <laughs> what? Now, true, now, true, if I was your publicist, I say, do not date Sherry. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Show is over, but don't forget to head over to morningsave.com to take advantage of today's great deal. Thank you for listening to today's episode.
We're midway through bath time, and two medium, two-topping Domino's pizzas for $5.99 each have begun their drive to the Smith's front door. That's a GPS-enabled custom delivery alert, folks. The newest improvement to the Domino's tracker saying Domino's will be there in two minutes. They're calling an audible. Bath time's now rinse time. They've got one kid dry, two kids dry. The pizzas are here. They made it to the door. The kids are cleaning off. The new Domino's tracker with GPS worked again. Two at a minimum. Pan pizza will be extra. Ask for this limited time offer. Prices, participation, delivery area, and charges may vary. Introducing Peacock, the new free streaming service from NBC Universal. It's hit movies, current shows, live sports, trending bits, and timeless hits. And that's why you can't not watch. Peacock, watch for free, upgrade for more. Stream now at PeacockTV.com. Law and Order SVU streaming now. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Thinking Crypto channel. I have a very special guest with me today, Phil Bonello, who's the Director of Research at Grayscale Investments. Phil, it's great to be chatting with you today. Thanks, Tony. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Phil, I'm excited to speak with you because I've wanted to get an inside look into Grayscale. We've heard a lot of news. You guys are doing some big things and uh, a lot of eyes on Grayscale. So, Lots of questions on my end, but let's start with your background. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Sure, yeah. Uh, originally from Chicago. I uh, grew up in the city of Chicago. I uh, went to University of Michigan. Uh, so, you know, Midwest, Midwest upbringing. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of my background. And, and what did you do before working at uh, Grayscale? Um, so... After school, I went to University of Michigan. After school, I uh, worked at IBM, and then I worked at a startup that did natural language generation. So uh, it's like a type of AI, um, mm. if you want to call it that. And then I uh, joined Ikigai Asset Management as the head of research. Ikigai is a long, short, multi-strategy crypto hedge fund um, out in LA. So that was a really interesting experience. And then I joined Grayscale about a year ago, over a little over a year ago. Um, and what was your first encounter with Bitcoin and crypto? And what was your aha moment? Like, oh, I get it. And I want to go work in this space. Yeah. So I think a lot of people join through Bitcoin. For me, it was really through Ethereum. Um, like I said, I was working at IBM and I was specifically working in like the IoT space. Um, I'm setting up like smart factories and such. And so when I started to look for new jobs, I was really interested in machine-to-machine -machine communication. And I happened upon Ethereum on the message board. And I was like, oh, this is going to solve so much of what I'm thinking about. Like, this is how machines are going to autonom autonomously communicate with each other. And so really Ethereum was like the first entrance into the crypto world. And uh, yeah, that, that, that's when I fell down the rabbit hole. Got it. So I have to ask, what are you holding your crypto portfolio? Um. I'll say, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to shield my bags or anything like that. So I'll just say, you know, I hold, I hold Bitcoin. Um, I hold a collection of altcoins and Ethereum. So I'm not like a maximalist in any respect. Um, yeah. So I have a, I have a diversified crypto portfolio. Awesome. So let's talk about Grayscale. You know, for those who are new to crypto listening to this podcast or watching the video, can you give us a 30,000 foot view of Grayscale? What is it about? What are the services you provide? Yeah. Um, so Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which is the flagship product for Grayscale, was founded in 2013. Grayscale itself was founded in 2015. 
what Grayscale does is essentially package crypto products uh, to resemble securities that are familiar to most investors. Um, you know, investing in the underlying can be kind of daunting to some people. And so uh, really what Grayscale does in the most simple terms is, is just package uh, cryptocurrencies into financial products that are familiar to investors. And uh, we have 14 different products, uh, most of which are single asset, sing single asset passive products, and one of which is an index, a market cap weighted index product. Got it. So it's essentially funds that are tied to specific cryptos and folks can invest in those respective funds. That's exactly right. Yeah. Now, is, is your service for institutional investors or do you also provide services to retail investors? Yeah. Um, so the private placement is open to uh, accredited investors. And what is unique about our products is that they are um, available to be traded on the secondary market. And so, um, you know, through a typical brokerage account, you can access something like Grayscale Bitcoin Trust under the ticker GBTC. Um, and so that is a common way for uh, investors to get exposure to Bitcoin. So we've heard a lot of reports of institutional investors investing in GBTC. Can you give us insight into what type of institutions uh, or institutional clients you're seeing demand from? Yeah, in general, um, it's dominated by hedge funds and family offices. We also see some interest and a growing amount of interest from pensions and endowments. Um, mm. But those are obviously like slower moving institutions. And um, yeah, so so right now it's, it's really the hedge funds and the family offices that are pouring into crypto. Got it. Yeah, I'm always curious. And I think the audience listening to as to who's the next the next, what's the next domino to fall, right? From that perspective. And it seems corporates are, you know, jumping in, putting Bitcoin in their balance sheet and all these things are happening. So um, I've seen your assets grow almost exponentially year over year, quarter over quarter, month over month. You know, what's the current asset under management and what type of growth have you guys been seeing? Yeah, I think our current uh, AUM is about 50 billion, uh, wow. which is quite amazing given that I think at the beginning of 2020, it was about 2 billion. Um, so just astonishing, astonishing growth. Um, you know, the, the appreciation in crypto has definitely helped, but we have also seen enormous inflows. I think in Q4, we saw approximately 3 billion in inflows and Q1 was a, a really strong quarter as well for us. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's been amazing. And I think one of the driving factors of that certainly has been the narrative of monetary inflation, uh, which we first saw kind of Paul Tudor Jones from a kind of institutional trading perspective highlight in I think May of 2020. And since then, we've seen a lot of people pile onto that narrative um, as M2 really grew, you know, 27% year over year. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we, I think a lot of people are expecting just some massive inflation that's coming. And uh, it seems a lot of folks are moving towards crypto now. Um, can you tell us about the recent addition of uh, Filecoin, Chainlink, and the other cryptos? You, you guys added a handful there. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we've been working on these products for a while. We're always trying to bring new products that are demanded in the marketplace uh, to our Grayscale product suite. Um, and I, I'm, I really like this, the, the diversity of products that we brought to market. So 
LivePeer is a video transcoding service, uh, you know, really robust decentralized network to provide uh, video transcoding, which is important if we want to have uh, uh, like anti-fragile live streaming at some point. Um, Filecoin is a decentralized storage network, uh, which I'm really excited about decentralized storage. It's just a massive market. Um, uh, Decentraland or in the, the uh, asset behind Decentraland in this case is Mana. And virtual worlds are, I think, kind of an in inevitability uh, in crypto. And crypto is really enab enabling virtual worlds to become a big, really a big market. Um, Brave Browser has, I think, over 25 million monthly active users. And their token is uh, basic attention token. So, so that's really exciting. And then Chainlink is sort of the leader in the Oracle space. And Oracles are thought of as kind of a bridge between off-chain data and on-chain uh, services. So a lot of services, especially in decentralized finance, require data feeds. Mm -hmm. And Chainlink is kind of the primary bridge to bring uh, price data and you know different types of data onto blockchain networks. So I'm curious, I'm sure you as a director of research you know, you're looking at these respective tokens and different cryptos and digital assets as to maybe what can be added to Grayscale's portfolio. But also, or do you guys take into account maybe if your clients are asking, hey, when you when are you going to have a Chainlink uh, trust? How's that process? Yeah, absolutely. I think the one of the primary inputs is is their market demand. You know, we, we want to, we ultimately want to be a bridge to access crypto. And um, if our clients really have a high demand for some of these assets, we want to rush to bring them to market in kind of the best way possible. For sure. Um, so I have to ask, and if, I don't know if you can speak to it, uh, but I have to ask. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there's plans to add new cryptos. Any hints or insights you can share there? You know, <laughs> all, all I can really say is we're, we're always trying to meet market demand. And uh, I think when you look at the market right now, it's pretty clear where there's where there's demand. Um, and so we are we are trying to build products that will that will kind of uh, meet the demand that we're seeing from our clients and meet demand that we're seeing in the general market. Um, and as far as the custody for the cryptos that you have, who, who do you currently use for custodial services? Um, yeah, so currently we use Coinbase. Um, and yeah, that we're, I think we're probably their largest client. Okay. Got it. Got it. So all the respective cryptos you have in your trust, um, Coinbase custody is for you. Um, and, and would it, would it be safe to say that if there's a, a asset they don't support necessarily on, on their exchange, you would maybe use another custodian or it doesn't matter. You could just custody, whatever you need to with them. Yeah, custody is, is certainly a prerequisite for us. Um, I, we have, you know, we make that decision when we're deciding whether we want to um, support a given asset. Um, I, I don't want to speak too specifically to our to our process, but uh, yeah. Got it. Um, now there's reports about Grayscale Premium and and possibly some issues there, and I would hope that you would be able to maybe add some clarity, shine some light on the situation and how Grayscale is looking to address it. Sure, yeah. I mean, so I think it's important to remember that the uh, GBTC price is kind of a market-based phenomenon. 
right? So we we issue shares on uh, through a private placement process, and later on those shares are freely trade tradable. Um, so at any point in time, the price of GBTC may not necessarily reflect the price of the underlying, and um, you know, throughout GBTC's lifetime, those shares have traded at, at a premium. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, right now with new products coming to market with an increased number of shares out of the market, um, it has been trading at a discount. And so uh, that, that isn't something that we necessarily have a specific purview into. It's really just a market phenomenon um, and, uh, you know, it's a d- demand and supply issue. Sure. Now, I've heard talks and, and from your CEO, Michael, about transitioning the GBTC to a Bitcoin ETF. Can you tell us about that and how that would be done? And, and look, there's so many people throwing their hats in the ring to try to get a Bitcoin ETF. You know, in addition to how that will be done, what are your, what's your outlook and optimism as far as getting one approved this year? Yeah, so as as Michael has said, uh, I think Barry said this as well. You know, G, uh, Grayscale is fully committed to um, uh, to converting GBTC into an ETF. Um, I think it's important to keep in mind in mind that it's a long road. Uh, the regulatory environment is you know certainly unclear, um, and Grayscale is really taking like all the approaches that it can. We're uh, well positioned and we're engaging with the SEC um, as appropriate. Um, you know, your previous point about the premium and the discount, I would say that, you know, if GBTC were to be converted into an ETF, um, there would be, uh, those GBTC shares would be automatically converted into the ETF shares. Um, and given the way that an ETF functions, uh, there would be an arbitrage opportunity, which would, you know, likely close any premium or discount gap. That's interesting. Um, you know, what are, what are your thoughts on Gary Genser, a, a man who's now going to be determined, but very knowledgeable about crypto, was teaching uh, Bitcoin and crypto at MIT, which I think is unprecedented for any SEC or regulatory uh, person or leading even a division. What are your thoughts that, you know, given that he knows about it, the likelihood of one getting a, or multiple ETFs getting approved this year is, is, is uh, very high. So I, I certainly think that it's a positive development that Gary Gensler is, uh, you know, in the SEC chair right now. And he's, uh, it's great that he's so educated on crypto and so educated on blockchain and that he's, uh, uh, you know, taught classes at MIT. I, I wouldn't want to speak specifically to, you know, whether that means it's more or less likely that a, a crypto ETF gets approved, but um, it's great that we have regulators that are really educated on, on the matter. Um, and I think that when an ETF gets, get, gets approved, um, it's going to be a huge moment for the industry. Obviously it just, it gives everybody access to crypto in a way that just currently isn't, uh, possible. Yeah, absolutely. I think everybody's anxiously awaiting it given that, uh, the summer being approved in Canada and, and other countries and, Obviously, it starts with a Bitcoin ETF and then the ETF can follow and so on and so forth. Um, so I want to ask, you know, what are some of the trends? I know you, you can't speak to everything, but uh, maybe what you can share as the director of research, what are you seeing in the crypto market as a whole um, from the grayscale perspective? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think what a lot of people are talking about, right? Um, I think decentralized finance is incredibly interesting. Uh, that uh, the ability to have peer-to-peer -peer borrowing, lending, exchange, build derivative products, build fixed income products, um, that's pretty amazing. And I think uh, like Ethereum as a, as a network and some of these smart contract networks are just very well positioned to build those types of products. Um, I think NFTs are really interesting as well. Um, we've obviously, there's obviously been a lot of hype in the NFT space. Um, things selling for just what seem like kind of crazy prices. Um, but, but people love NFTs, uh, whether it's just artwork or it's an avatar um, or, you know, more of a functional NFT where there's some sort of use tied to a specific, uh, a, a specific state signature. You, you can't deny that the market is responding favorably to, um, to NFTs. Uh, I'm also like really interested in what is happening in the storage space. Mm. Uh, you know, I mentioned that we, we uh, recently listed Filecoin as, as one of our products. When I think about one of the biggest tra potential transformations in the next 10, 20 years is taking personal ownership of data versus uh, kind of conglomerates owning our data. Mm. And so whenever that becomes really easy to do, that's going to be a huge watershed moment. Uh, so that's something I'm watching as well. So would, would, it, would it be safe to say Grayscale may explore some options with offering some sort of NFT product or marketplace or something? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I'd go that far, but um, yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're always, we're always exploring. Sure. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about uh, Grayscale commercials. Um, certainly, uh, very interesting topic for the crypto market, and and folks love to see that the commercials are being put out, and it's getting the word out there for the crypto market. You know, walk me through some of the things you guys are thinking of, some of the current commercials, and so on and so forth. Yeah, you know, I I I must say that I didn't have my hand in, in the making of the commercial on a day-to-day -day basis. But I think what was interesting and I think what was communicated in the commercial was really this juxtaposition of, of uh, Bitcoin and crypto being this really scary environment and something that's, you know, like the dark web, like this magic, magic internet money. People really, they view it as uh, this opaque space, right? And, and what Grayscale does is we try to make it very easy a very easy space to invest in and so that was really the juxtaposition of the commercial where you know there's this like kind of this uh fight between the criminal and like the main character and then really they're just sitting in their living room and uh she she just simply invested in grayscale through her brokerage account yeah for sure i, I remember the drop goal campaign and and uh gold bugs going crazy over that <laughs> the commercial so uh, that's, but I, uh I yeah that's that one has fared pretty well huh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The likes of uh, Peter Schiff and these guys going nuts. Um, yeah. But yeah, I love it. I, I love that you guys are doing kind of that mass marketing and uh, it seems to be working well for you all. Um, so I, I kind of asked you some questions along this line, but um, you know, obviously there's things under NDA and things you, you won't be able to speak to, but maybe you can drop some hints as to, you know, what else we can expect from Grayscale in 2021. Maybe it's additional coin trust, whatever those coins may be or anything else? 
Yeah. Um, again, you know, I can't really speak. I can't really speak to any specific coins. Um, I, I, yeah, or any spe- specific product developments. Um, but there possibly plans to add more for sure. But we're certainly, yeah, we're certainly exploring. We have plans to add more, more products in the, in the coming year. Awesome. Um, I recently, I think it was reported like Digital Currency Group, obviously the parent company of Grayscale, uh, uh, Barry Silver, uh, they've been buying the GBTC um, shares, if, if I'm articulating that well. Um, what's the thought process behind that? It's just they're trying to get a holding on their books, you know, uh, having exposure to Bitcoin, but through the, the, the uh, GBTC. Yeah, I, I think I think it's really... Um a mechanism to show the market, show our customers that we are fully committed to uh, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust as a product, um, and that and that we're we're also betting on it, right? So uh, we we uh, while there is while there is a discount, that discount also presents an opportunity. So if, if that discount were ever to close, then you're able to capture, you know, that arbitrage between that discount and the net asset value. Um, you know, if an ETF were to get approved, then that arbitrage would close as well. So um, really, I think uh, Barry and Michael and uh, kind of DCG really wanted to show the market that they're they're kind of with the customers, with the, the GBTC customers. For sure. Uh, so let's talk about the market as a whole. And obviously Bitcoin, we're in a bull market. Bitcoin's been on the rise. Everything's rising. You know, what are your guys' perspective and outlook on this? And, and you know, do you guys believe in like the stock to flow model and, you know, <laughs> anything you can share on there that take us behind the curtain? What, what are you guys talking about? What are you thinking about as the market is on the rise? Sure. I like to look at on-chain metrics. Uh, one of the metrics that I uh, particularly like is something that I call the um, speculator versus holder index. And so I categorize holders as people or coins that have been held for uh, one to three years. So that filters out kind of short-term supply and it also filters out coins that have potentially been lost um, or stolen and just, you know, they're never going to move again. And then you have on the speculator side, coins that have moved in the last zero to 90 days. Mm -hmm. So what you typically want to see is a really large holder base and a really low speculator base. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in in the summer, last summer, we saw a massive, massive holder base, which pretty much signaled to us that, okay, these holders, these one to three year holders have gone through an amazing amount of volatility and they have not sold through it, right? And so, so price sitting at um, you know eight thousand, these these holders probably are not going to sell until at least a new high, right? Because they've they've undergone volatility over the last one to three years. Um, and so now, as we've reached new highs, we start to see that holder base start to change a little bit. The holders are going down, uh, speculators are going up a little bit, um, which I think just indicates that we're later on in the market cycle, right? Like, I think everyone would agree with that. We're obviously not at the very beginning of it. um, And so, so yeah, I think one thing to caveat there is potentially some of those old holders have uh, sold their coins to 
a new set of holders. Um, you know, I'm talking about institutions in this case, which have a much longer time frame, much longer time horizon on their on their uh, kind of you know holdings. Like they're they're not they're not necessarily putting 50, 75 percent of their um, treasuries into Bitcoin. They're putting maybe 0.5, maybe 1% of their treasuries in. <clears throat> and with such a small allocation, they can feel comfortable with a long holding period as well. And so I think we've, we've seen also that corroborated like through on-chain metrics, um, like the amount of supply that's uh, on exchange. And so you can see that there are some, sometimes there are these really large outflows from exchanges to um, kind of uh, probably custodial wallets and so I, I, that's a potential indication of institutional adoption. So we've been seeing the likes of MicroStrategy, Tesla, and so forth, and so on and so forth, putting Bitcoin in a balance sheet. I think we just heard about Mogo. Um, they bought some Ether and, and they have some Bitcoin. So there's a trend here, um, and it goes back to the, the reason of inflation and the monetary policy. Um, are you guys in any way approaching these corporates to say, hey, instead of you don't have to go through the whole jumping through all these hoops to buy the actual asset, but you can buy GBTC and that could be a way for you to get exposure. Is that like a strategy of yours to approach these folks? Yeah, I do believe the sales team is, is um, that they do have that approach. And I think there are actually some um, potential accounting benefits in holding GBTC versus holding the underlying. Got it. And And would some of that be, holding GBTC versus the actual asset be, be maybe like regulation wise, it, it maybe protects certain companies. I think that might be part of it, but there's specifically a, a gap accounting rule. So um, uh, yeah, you know, and unfortunately I can't speak to the, <laughs> you know, the, all the accounting nuances, but I know that that is something that has been raised uh, specifically around GBTC. Got it. Uh so I want to ask, because Dogecoin is going crazy. I, I personally don't hold Dogecoin, but I know a lot of people are talking about Elon's talking about, he said he's going to talk about an SNL coming this weekend. You know, what do you guys think about that? Because, you know, are, is anybody asking you, hey, where's where's the Doge trust fund or trust account, uh, index or whatever it is? Uh, you know, I don't. I don't know if there's been a whole lot of inbound interest around Dogecoin or anything like that, but uh, it's certainly an amazing phenomenon and I don't, you can't fight it. it you know, it's the market and the market uh, has decided that Doge is worth $60 billion or whatever it is. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, I think it's, I think it's kind of around this idea of financial populism, which we saw with uh, GME and uh, kind of the little guy, you know, taking out taking out the people who think that something is not worth you know whatever the value they deem it's worth um and uh yeah it's pretty interesting uh obviously they have elon helping the whole price action but yeah it's been it's been kind of fun it's been kind of fun to see yeah you know what's interesting is elon he he, he tweeted about it that he holds bitcoin he hasn't sold any tesla sold a small amount to prove liquidity um and then they still hold a majority of what they bought on their balance sheet but they're not holding doge but i i, I feel like i don't know if elon's trolling and it's just fun and and that's driving the price up and uh, it's it's like you said an interesting phenomenon yeah and uh 
what was interesting, I, like that was the first time that Elon, in that tweet that you mentioned, that was the first time that Elon really referenced his ownership of Bitcoin, at least, you know, large ownership. Uh, he, I guess he didn't say how much, but he said, I haven't sold any of my Bitcoin. And I, I think that is probably in reference to a larger amount of Bitcoin than he's previously said he had. I think he had said he had like maybe like half a Bitcoin or something. Um, so, yeah, I think that's also a very bullish development. For sure. Um, so I want to ask you about uh, crypto regulations. Obviously, we're still waiting on full regulations, let's say, from the SEC. I think we do have some level regulations from the CFTC. And is Grayscale participating in lobbying and or any active advocacy groups and things like that? Anything you can share there? Um, I think we're making ourselves very much available to the SEC. Um, we're members of the Blockchain Association. Mm. Um, so we you know, help where we can there. Um, but yeah, it's just like an ongoing communication with the SEC. Got it. Um, well, I hope uh, this year we are able to finally get that regulatory clarity that we need. And maybe Congress is, is the one that has to take action here. But um, obviously some, um, some situations going on with the SEC and, and some other cryptos. But uh, um, okay. Uh, you know, as far as CBDCs, what do you guys think about that with central banks tokenizing fiat currencies and, and could Grayscale be involved in helping with any of this or whatever it may be? Yeah, I, I actually wrote a report on the difference between CBDCs and kind of public uh, public digital currencies, right? Um, it's interesting. There may be efficiency gains in, in CBDCs in a way, I, I think of USDC as almost a CBDC, right? It's a it's a stable coin that's under the purview of um, kind of the U.S. government. Um, so I, I I struggle to see kind of the long term utility of of CBDCs. When when I think about why digital currencies have become so popular, it's not because they're digital, but it's because they're permissionless. They have fixed supply. They may have interesting token dynamics going on, um, but like with respect to a, a CBDC, it still is totally and wholly controlled by uh, you know a central government, and that central government can seize that that CBDC. They can print more of that CBDC. Uh, they can restrict the transfer of that CBDC, and so you then basically lose all of the great things um, you know that make something like Bitcoin Bitcoin, right? Like Bitcoin is not special because it's digital. Um, it's special because it's censorship resistant, it's fixed supply, um, it's seizure resistant, um, it's open and permissionless to everybody in the world. Uh, you know, those are qualities that, um, for better or worse, I guess, you can't have a central actor um, in that situation because at some point that central actor will be faced with the decision of whether or not to limit any of those characteristics that I just mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. It to your point, like, uh, the, I, and I interviewed Chris Giancarlo, who's heading up the Digital Dollar Project. And yeah. I think one of the, the open-ended questions or questions on the table that hasn't been answered is what's, how does this line up with the Constitution and, and privacy and, and, and the Bill of Rights and all of that? Um, and I think that still has to be figured out because to your point, they're going to be able to track and even it's even more centralized and, and you know, try to probably instantly tax you and 
whatever it may be, it seems like those things are on the horizon, but probably yeah. a larger debate that has to, ha- has to happen with our rights. I don't think it's a coincidence that China is leading the way on CBDCs, right? It's, uh, it's a really useful tool for a, a government that wants to you know, potentially take more control. For sure. Um, so I want to ask, you know, being the director of research and you're probably looking at this market macro level, you know, where do you see crypto in three to five years, you know, from an adoption standpoint, like, you know, price aside, do, do you see like a lot of uh, pretty much every company accepting crypto people spending it crypto ATMs popping up, you know, where, where do you see the future of it? Yeah, I, I think this year was the first time that we really saw the development of applications with a good user base. And so I see this as the beginning of a 10 to 20 year trend Mm. um, in how we kind of use uh, online tools. Um, Yeah, prior to this year, it was really unclear how any of this was actually going to come together, I think. Um, I looked at Bitcoin and, and and I, I would say like, okay, Bitcoin is ready for the world and the world is ready for Bitcoin. Uh, the technology was there already, right? Like there, there's not a whole lot that needs to be done for Bitcoin to work. Um, it's a store of value. With Ethereum, what we're running into right now is more than anything, it's a broad, uh, like it's a, um, a bandwidth issue, right? Mm. There's, there's not enough bandwidth to support um, like how much demand there is in, in crypto. And that's an amazing problem to have, right? Like there's, there is the demand. Um, now we just need to scale and we just make the user experience really great and people will start to use it. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm really hopeful. Uh, I, I think a lot of, I think gaming will be a huge area of, of adoption. We're already seeing that. Uh, decentralized finance, of course. Like the thing with, and I, I asked, I'm trying to figure this question out currently is, what is the best way to measure the success of something like decentralized finance, right? Like, do you want, do you want to look at uh, just aggregate users on a daily basis? I'm not sure um, because do, do people generally participate in, in their, in de- like, de- like finance on a daily basis? Is that what most people in the world do? Is that a, you know, broad based application or is that something that's going to be more behind the scenes and more of like a, institutional adoption type of thing or something that companies companies integrate with DeFi and then people integrate with those companies. Um, so I think it's a question of how are layers built out and where in that tech layer um, will uh, consumers uh, have their touch points. So yeah, I, I, think, I think it's great. Um, I'm, I'm more optimistic now on crypto than I really ever have been. For sure. Yeah. It's, it seems uh, everybody's jumping on board yesterday. eBay CEO talked about it. Like they're exploring crypto payments as well as NFT auctions, which would be huge. And I can't imagine that Amazon is sitting, sitting on their laurels, just watching everybody do this. I think they might be on their way. And who yeah. knows, maybe they create their own coin, prime coin or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, that would be interesting. So do you, do you think um, on that note, like, companies like Amazon and Google, we know Facebook's creating their own digital currency, uh, would start to build their own respective coins and not necessarily to comp- compete with Bitcoin, but within their own ecosystem. Um, and that adds even, you know, adds value 
and retention to, you know, for their customer base? Maybe, you know, I kind of struggle to see where that value is. Like I could see it from like a loyalty, you know, loyalty perspective. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe they do some retroactive token. Uh, you know, so if you were, if you've been a great customer of uh, Amazon or eBay or something like that, then they can airdrop you some tokens like we've seen with some of the DeFi protocols. That'd be pretty interesting. Um, you know, but I, I, I think what I'm more excited about is really new companies coming to disrupt the, the incumbents. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we're going to see some massive, massive companies be built over the next decade. Wow. Uh, well, certainly I'm excited about the future of crypto. And um, I think my last question here, if there's anything I missed, if there's anything uh, that you you're seeing on your end that you, you, you know, you, it really piques your interest on the folks at Grayscale that you want to share uh, any thoughts on? Um, you know, I don't think so. I think I've touched on it. I think we're, you know, we're, we're watching a lot of the developments really closely, like DeFi, NFTs, storage. Um, I think the infrastructure build out is really interesting. So like I talked, like I talked about with live here and Chainlink. Um, that's that's all really needs. We need all of that to scale um, crypto, so that the user experience can catch up, and so that we can really onboard like a billion users, right? Um, I think I looked a couple weeks ago, and we still have under three million daily active users on Ethereum and Bitcoin in aggregate, right? And so that's that's peanuts. Uh, <laughs> And so we have a long way to go to really bring this asset class into maturity. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm just really excited to see some of these projects come to market. For sure. Um, well, let's wrap it up here with some rapid fire questions such as, uh, what's your favorite food? You know, a good ribeye uh, <laughs> is probably, like, uh, that's, that's kind of my go-to. I'll often just go pick up a ribeye and toss it on the grill and that'll be my dinner. Nice. Uh, favorite musician or band? Uh, Jack Johnson. That's kind of my go-to. That's been my go-to for a long time. Awesome. I, I enjoy some Jack Johnson myself. Uh, favorite movie? Uh, Pulp Fiction. Great one. Uh, favorite book? The Sovereign Individual. Very nice. And when you're not working at Grayscale, uh, what are you doing for fun as a hobby? Yeah, you know, it's it's tough to pull my, pull myself away from crypto, uh, you know, whether it's grayscale or just generally crypto. But uh, um, I like I like working out, uh, playing tennis, playing golf. Yeah, awesome. doing active stuff. Uh, well, uh, now that NYC is opening up, I guess you'll you'll be out, out and about a bit more <laughs> there. Absolutely, yeah, I'm excited for it. Awesome. Well, Phil, uh, pleasure chatting with you. Uh, excited to see what the new developments will be later this year for Grayscale and hope to have you back on. But thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to be on. Thanks, Tony. Really appreciate it. This 
This podcast is brought to you by ESET, the global leaders in cybersecurity. ESET business solutions range from endpoint and mobile security to encryption, two-factor authentication, and advanced threat detection. And they've just introduced their new endpoint security management platform called ESET Protect. The ESET Protect business security bundles take security to a whole new level. For small businesses and MSPs, I recommend ESET Protect Advanced to cover all your security bases. ESET Protect Advanced includes endpoint protection, cloud sandboxing for advanced threat detection, and prevention, full disk encryption, file server security, and cloud-based console. Right now, you can save 20% with this limited time offer. So you're not only getting best-in-class cloud-managed protection against advanced attacks, you're enjoying a significant discount. Not yet convinced? Don't worry. You can also get a free trial and an interactive demo at business.eset.com slash radio. Get 20% off ESET's new business cybersecurity bundle, ESET Protect Advanced, at business.eset.com slash radio. Ditch the gas and start mowing, trimming, and blowing with Skill Power Core 40 volt battery powered outdoor power equipment. New and now available at Lowe's. The Power Core 40 mower with 25% longer runtime and industry leading charging times gets you back to work in just 15 minutes. Stop in or visit Lowe's.com and check them out during Lowe's Spring Fest going on now. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. Battery charges from 0 to 30% in 15 minutes based on a 2.5 amp hour battery, US only. Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes. Just a warning, this podcast contains descriptions of a shooting that some listeners may find distressing. Chicago emergency sampler. Yeah, there was about seven or eight gunshots fired uh, on the 2300 block of South Sawyer. 2300 block of Sawyer. It was around 2.30 on the morning of the 29th of March when police received calls from people that had heard gunshots fired in Little Village in the west side of Chicago. Okay, did you happen to see anything out that way? No, I mean, I just looked out the window and I don't see any cars. I just, like, I just literally heard, like, five, like, more than five. They sounded like a lot. Okay, Um, I'll let the police know and we'll send them out, okay? All right, thank you. Have a good evening. Two police officers arrived on the scene, getting out of the car to follow two people running from them down an alley. One of those running away were pushed to the ground and handcuffed. The other kept going. The person still running was 13-year-old Adam Toledo. One police officer continues after him, shouting at him to stop. He caught up with him by a wooden fence and shouted, "'Show me your hands!' Adam began to turn around, and then the police officer fires a single shot to his chest. Shot fired, shot fired, get an ambulance up here now. Look at me, look at me. Look at me. You alright? Where are you shot? From the moment the police arrived to the moment Adam was shot, took only 20 seconds. Stay with me, stay with me. All right, Temple, we'll get an ambulance rolling. Somebody bring the medical kit now. Okay, can someone send a medical kit, please? The man that had fired the shot was 34-year-old officer Eric Stillman. It killed Adam Toledo, a Latino teenager. The video from the police body cam was released to the public. It sparked riots in Chicago. 
people marched through the streets, some holding signs saying stop killing kids. Since 2015, 56 children have been shot by police, the youngest being just six years old. Welcome to the Sky News Daily Podcast with me, Ashna Harinag. The incident happened on the 29th of March, but the footage wasn't actually released until the 15th of April, some 16 days on. This is Sanya Burgess. She is on our data and forensics team here at Sky News. Since the shooting of Adam Toledo, she and her team have been looking closely at the video footage from the night. The reason for that initially was put down to concerns around Adam's age. You know, this is a 13-year-old who, in the footage, you see very graphically dying. It's very distressing footage. But after pressure and intervention, it was released and it was shown to the family first. They were given two days to watch it, absorb it, digest it before it actually was released publicly. There were two different versions that were released. There's police versions. There's two different versions of that. They're basically compilations. One is two minutes long. Another is almost six minutes long and it's packed full of captions and bits that have been mapped onto the screen. This is quite unusual, I think, but there's nothing factually wrong in it. It just presents a very clear narrative of how the police see that incident happening. For example, they apply labels saying that Adam was holding a gun when that's still being debated. And you also have the raw versions. Now, the raw versions are released by this group called Copper, and they are an independent body that holds the Chicago police to account. And interestingly, a spokesperson for Copper actually criticised the police's versions that they put out because they they were slowed down, they had these labels, and said that Copper intentionally discloses only raw footage in line with their goal to, quote, release video and other materials in an objective and transparent manner. So essentially by criticising the police's way, there's an implication there that they're accusing the police of not being objective and transparent. Sanya and the team went through all the footage from that night, the nearby CCTV and the body cams worn by each police officer at the scene, meticulously examining it frame by frame to put together a new, more in-depth analysis. The first footage we get is the body cam footage of Officer Stillman. The footage, it's worth noting with body cam footage, you don't get a perfect framing of all times, especially during a chase. It's it's shaky, it's blurry, it is really, at some points, very difficult to view. So what we see is we see the police officer pulling up in his car. Actually, the moment is under such time pressure that Officer Stillman, the car is still rolling as he opens the door. Instantly, you see these two people fleeing. Officer Stillman apprehends one of them. He's called Roman Rubin. Officer Stillman throws Roman Rubin to the floor and his colleague arrests him. Now, this is when the situation turns. Officer Stillman stands up and you get a view down this alley. Yeah, the only source of lights really are the street lights, which are emitting this kind of hazy yellow glow onto the area but also because it's dark officer stillman has a, a flashlight which as well as the shakiness of the body camera footage you've also got the shakiness of this torch which is flashing left right and center which also makes even if you were there in person it kind of hard to see what's in front of you down this narrow dark alleyway 
at 2.38.38 a.m. Please stop! An officer Stillman actually instructs Adam to show his hands. This is as they're basically coming to a stop. It's been a very, very fast chase, and there's been little interaction verbally between the two of them at this point. He's radioing back to control, raising the fact that Adam is apparently holding his waistband as he runs. So this is an important piece of context because it means that not only has Officer Stillman been called to the area because of gunshot noises, but he's also analysing Adam's body language already from this point. So they have run down this alleyway, both of them, all of this happening in a matter of seconds. I think that's important to point out, isn't it? As they come to a stop, what happens then? The first thing to note about where it is they come to a stop, bearing in mind this is a chase. So Adam is actually the one that causes them to stop. This alley is a wooden fence all along one side, and then on the other side, it's garage doors, fences, etc. It's a closed alley. Apart from the moment where Adam chooses to stop, there is a gap, a sizable gap in the fence. Adam stops almost exactly as the police officer asks him to show his hands. At 2.38.39, while he's speaking, that's when they come to a stop milliseconds later imperceptible basically you can see in a frame by frame footage that adam who has stopped in front of this gap in the fronts his right arm which is on the opposite side from the police officer moves and you can just about see his elbow come behind his body from where officer stillman is stood he could probably even though it happens very quickly see this elbow moving back and this movement in a hand one frame later you get a glimpse of something in Adam's hand. You get another frame that disappears, another frame, you see it again. Now, the fact that there was only really two frames that we could isolate this moment where you can possibly see something in Adam's hand shows how difficult this must have been in the moment, trying to analyse, is this person armed or not? So in those two seconds, Officer Stillman has a split decision to make whether Adam is carrying a weapon in his hands or not. And all within a blink of an eye. At 2.38.40, he turns and faces the officer as he's being instructed to. He raises both hands. This comes across multiple, multiple frames and unequivocally, with all the all the confusing elements of the role of light, etc., his hands are abundantly clearly empty and he raises them up to his head height. In that same second, he's shot, which completely contradicts the earlier police statements and the prosecutor's statements that he was armed at the time of the shooting and that it was an armed confrontation. I think what struck us most from the footage was that at the end it was as clear as it could be and that Adam had followed the police instructions but it's also the sense that for a police officer you don't have all the information at the time and this decision is happening incredibly quickly with very little actual information and if you have so little information should you be pulling the trigger? 
The other footage that the forensics team analysed was picked up by a camera at the Lawndale Christian Health Centre, a large brick building several storeys high, situated just behind the wooden fence at the side of the alley. CCTV footage is never, it's not like on CSI where they're like, enhance and it becomes this crystal clear image. The more you zoom in, the more distorted it becomes. So this footage was across a car park and it captured the side where we can see what the obscured arm was doing. When you look at the footage just playing out, it appears that you can see Adam's arm moves and something appears to drop behind this fence. But when you try and do this frame-by-frame analysis, even with zooming in, it's actually really hard to isolate a moment where you could see his arm fully extend. And because later on in the footage, when we see where this gun is discovered it's quite a long way along the fence and you would assume that to get the gun so far along the fence you would chuck it so that's not to say that he wasn't able to do it because there's 101 things adrenaline he could have flicked his wrist if he had been carrying the gun and threw it it just means that it was hard for us to be conclusively like oh yes and at this point you see his arm extend to this amount the degrees that his arm is extended indicates that, yes, that makes total sense that his, the gun would end up there. And also the fact that, again, this is all happening in milliseconds, the frame rate of the CCTV camera just struggles to catch it. Shots fired by the police. I'm sorry, uh, you said request shots fired by the police? I got that. You have to consider the situation within the totality of the rest of the evidence. What's the time of day? What does the officer know has happened before? Is the officer engaging with somebody that a random stranger has said, look, I think he might have a gun or a knife? Or is the officer engaging with somebody where he's clearly seen a firearm and that person has been shooting a gun just a few seconds beforehand? So an officer's use of force is legal if their perception of danger can be deemed as objectively reasonable. So even if that perception of danger turns out later on to be wrong and you could argue that might be the case in the Adam Toledo shooting but there was a perception of danger about a second or two before the officer fired the weapon and that second might be enough time that it takes to squeeze the trigger so we're talking about microsecond split second decision making Um, and that's really difficult to turn around and say that, that there's maliciousness on the part of somebody if they perceived a threat under those circumstances. Although it's easy to try and guess what Officer Stillman might have been thinking, for those of us that have never been in a situation remotely close to this, watching this video, it's impossible for me to have any real understanding of what it must have been like in that moment. And knowing that Adam is only 13, I mean, he was just a child. Whereas I'm looking at it from the view of the perspective of a police officer chasing somebody down an alleyway who's got a gun and they suddenly turn and spin towards me. So what you find with these incidents where there's some ambiguity is that each side finds reinforcement in their perception. This is Jerry Ratcliffe. He worked in the Metropolitan Police from 1984 to 1996. My career started in as a patrol officer doing frontline response in Bowen Limehouse in the east end of London. And then for a few years I moved up to central London where I was an armed response officer with the Royalty and Diplomatic Protection Department. 
These are the armed police you see outside Downing Street and embassies, for example, or when politicians are on the move. One of my jobs was to do armed response on motorbikes around central London, which is frankly one of the best jobs I ever did. It was great fun. I carried a firearm every day. So it gave me an insight into the changes, the, the challenges that you have policing when you carry a firearm compared to when you don't. I haven't shot anybody, but I did point my gun at somebody and I put pressure on the trigger. I didn't pull the trigger because it wasn't the suspect that we were looking for. He just unfortunately made a drastic and sudden appearance at a time when it probably wasn't a good idea. But uh, it certainly gave me insights into how easy it could be to make mistakes. Jerry was in the police but for 12 I years, but his career in the force ended prematurely. Sports. And I was ice climbing in the Cairngorms and unfortunately had an accident, fell about three or four hundred feet down an ice slope, snapped my femur in half, and that was pretty much at that moment the end of my policing career. It took me a, a year to learn to walk again without a walking stick or a limp. Instead, he decided to do a PhD. So after the PhD, I moved to Australia, where I taught criminal intelligence for the federal government for some years, but I like studying high-volume crime, and where better to come to than America, where it seems that many places everywhere is high-volume in terms of the crime problems. The police here in the United States shoot and kill about a thousand people a year, and that's been consistent for the last four or five years. The majority of the people that they're shooting are armed, and the majority of the shootings are justified. But inevitably, there are going to be some incidents that are egregious and clearly bad shootings. And there are going to be some that are what we call lawful but awful, where the use of force is justified under the guidance laid down by the Supreme Court, but nonetheless might have been avoided in some fashion. I think it's likely that the Adam Toledo shooting is going to fall into the category of lawful but awful. I mean, any time that police shoot is bad, but any time police shoot a child, it's, I, I it, it's in a category of awful that's almost a, a standalone category in itself. It's, it's truly tragic. Where you shot, man? Where you shot? Stay with me, stay with me. All right, Temple, we'll get an ambulance rolling. After Officer Stillman has fired the shot, he immediately goes over and checks how Adam is. He says, look at me, look at me. He phones for medical help. He reports that he's the one that fired the shot. And he also begins to do CPR on Adam. Stay with me, hey, stay with hey, me. Hey, stay awake, stay awake, Put man. Put your chest uh, on. I'm, I'm going to start CPR. I'm not feeling a heartbeat. Go ahead, I'm trying as fast as I can. Oh, i got to get this chest sealed first. As fast as I can. The chest seal open. Give me a light, give me a light, give me a light. Give me a light now. Give me a light, give me a light. Eventually, colleagues come and take over the medical care. Adam did die at the scene. Now, once other officers are on the scene... You do see Officer Stillman not panic, but in his voice, and even when he's talking to Adam, he sounds shocked and he sounds a little panicked. And actually his body cam footage ends with him sat on the floor with his, almost with his head in his hands. Thank you.
Body cam footage shows officers walking up the wooden fence and shining a torch on a gun they find on the ground. Officer Stillman got taken to hospital from the crime scene. When he returned to the station, he filled in the case report. The insight into assumptions that police make during these incidents, they didn't initially have Adam's identity. They listed him as a John Doe. And they actually listed his age as between 18... Uh, John Doe is when they don't have a name. It's just the, it's like the stand-in name they use. So they listed him as a John Doe and put his age between 18 and 24. I mean, in the video, he very clearly looks a 13-year-old. So whether that was something that was deliberate because you would just assume that it would be someone older running around at 2.30am or whether, you know, I, I can't say the reason as to why they listed that, but that really stood out to me. And the other thing was also reading through these case documents, they have to put a lot of information as to why, you know, why shots were fired, who who fired them, etc. And most of it seemed to make sense along with what I had viewed. But one of the things that stood out to me was that they indicated that this 13-year-old was ticked as using force likely to cause death or great bodily harm. Now, we know from that footage that the only interaction between the police at that time was Adam running, maybe dropping the gun, maybe dropping an object and then turning around and putting his hands up so it's very unclear to me why a box was ticked that said that he used forced. I wanted to ask Jerry Ratcliffe what constitutes an officer being under threat and justifies pulling the trigger? The Supreme Court in the United States weighed in on this some years ago And they unanimously decided that the question of whether an officer uses excessive force, and I'm quoting directly from the Supreme Court here, requires careful attention to the facts and circumstances of each particular case, including the severity of the crime at issue, whether the suspect poses an immediate threat to the safety of the officer or others, and whether he's actively resisting arrest or attempting to evade arrest by flight. And what they said was that the estimate of reasonableness in any particular case must be judged from the perspective of a reasonable officer on the scene. And that calculation must embody an allowance for the fact that police officers are often forced to make split-second decisions about the amount of force necessary in a particular situation. There's something else worth thinking about here. In the US, almost all police officers carry guns, while here in the UK, there are around 6,500 armed police officers. That's about 5% of the entire police force. The training for this is an 11-week course with refresher training throughout the year. Across the United States, there are no set standards. There are 18,000 police departments and they all have their own different rules and regulations around this kind of thing. But in many departments, it's a few hours of shooting training And then once or twice a year, you might go back to the range and reclassify. If you're lucky, your department might have access to a shooting simulator. Sanya, finally, what happens next? What happens now? Because we saw protests, didn't we, following what happened to Adam. It was just horrifically ironic in a way that this happened all during the trial of Derek Chauvin and what was going on in Minnesota. There is clearly a lot of anger out there. People are are looking to Chicago police, are looking to his family who are still demanding what they see as wanting justice. What do you think is going to happen now? 
If people think the George Floyd trial is going to be like the bookend on the Black Lives Matter movement, then they're completely <laughs> idiotic. I mean, this has sparked an anger that has been burning for a long time. And the fact that this it keeps happening, it's just going to be feeding in to that anger and people want answers and people want longer term justice. And what's been really interesting about the Adam Toledo case is he came from a Latino family and actually the topic of police force used against Latinos has been massively underreported and it was an opportunity for the, those kind of stories to be heard. And I think for Officer Stillman, he's been placed on administrative leave. There's an internal investigation into whether his shooting was legal or not. It is obviously not quite as black and white as a lot of other cases we've seen come out of America. And we have the trial of the the man who was with Adam to unfold. Uh, I think America continues to grapple with this as a problem and the rest of the world is watching. With up to a million police officers, there are going to be some that shouldn't be in the job. There are going to be some that don't have good decision making. There are going to be a few that are criminal and make egregious decisions and we're starting to see more prosecutions of people who should be prosecuted for something you know manslaughter or murder I'm you know that's up for a court to decide you know that you can't have a job with a million people and not find a few knuckleheads who don't deserve to be in it but there also has to be space for the fact that we're asking people under a lot of stress to make split-second decisions and genuine errors can occur and I think we don't have the space for that right now. The dialogue doesn't create a space for mistakes, for errors of judgment, and for genuinely good people who are put in an incredibly stressful situation that have a whole lead-up of failures that have got the police officers there as well as the failures of the community that have got the suspect there. Insecure, everybody can shut off their camera. Insecure, everyone shut off your camera. My thanks to Jerry Ratcliffe and Sanya Burgess. You can read the forensic team's report on the shooting on our website and app. Thanks for listening to the Sky News Daily Podcast presented by me, Ashna Harinag, and produced by Nicola Ayres with interviews producer Tatiana Alderson. Until next time. The climate crisis can be an overwhelming and emotional conversation. We will not let you get away with this. But it isn't just about cutting carbon emissions or reporting on disasters. On Sky News Climatecast, we'll examine the big issues in depth with scientists, policymakers and activists. Every week, we'll highlight how small changes can make a big difference as we look for solutions to climate change problems. Sky News Climatecast. Listen, follow, subscribe. Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Joining me right now is the host of Kudlow on, at 4 p.m. every day here on Fox Business. He's the former National Economic Council director. Larry Kudlow, great to see you this morning. Thank you so much for being here. We're waiting on the jobs numbers out on Friday. We just got the ADP number, Larry, and yet the federal government is going to throw stimulus. It's going to throw higher taxes. It may very well throw higher interest rates at an economy that seems to be doing very well on its own. Your reaction? Well, the House is not on fire. 
there is no crisis. There's no economic crisis. Uh, there's no longer a vaccination crisis, as all the businesses are now opening up. There is no um, existential threat from global warming. So the Bidens are kind of running am out of ammunition to sell this massive uh, $4 trillion add-on to the $1.9 trillion. That, by the way, is a spending number, but it also is a taxing number. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That continues to be my mantra. I had to chuckle when Mark Zandi joined me a few minutes ago, Larry, when I said to him, look, the economy is doing fine. Uh, we got a 6.4 percent GDP in the first quarter. We're expecting up to 9 percent growth for the year 2021. And he said, well, first he said the economy is booming. But then when I said that, he said, well, the reason it's booming is because the $1.9 trillion stimulus package and the stimulus checks going out <laughs> to people. What do you say? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think those stimulus checks had some impact in the month of March. I, I don't deny that. But I think it's pretty yeah. important to note that we had a 33 percent increase in third quarter GDP, a 4 percent increase yep. in fourth quarter GDP, a 6.5 percent increase in uh, uh, first quarter GDP. By the way, the Atlanta Fed, just for what it's worth, their GDP now number, 13.2 percent in the second yeah. quarter. Uh, the stimulus checks paid a modest role in consumer spending. By the way, the stimulus checks also helped to stimulate China. I don't think that was the intended consequences. But our trade deficit with China has now become gargantuan. It's almost like a straight line up because consumer spending here is buying Chinese goods over there. That's not a good policy mix. What we need is investment and productivity. But unfortunately, Biden policies, I don't know that they'll get through, but Biden policies are fighting a war against investment and capital formation, which means they're fighting a war against worker jobs and wages, because the jobs and the wages come from the investment into the new businesses. So it doesn't make any sense yeah. whatsoever. But we don't have any crises. And Janet Yellen kind of let the cat out of the bag. Uh, she was speaking the truth, if only for an hour or two, until the White House got to her and she had to walk that back. I've seen this before. It'll happen again. But you can't have Maria, you can't have real GDP growing at six, seven, eight percent, nominal GDP growing at 10 percent and a 160 10 year. You can't have that. The 10 years got to go up yeah. if, how and when. I don't know what the timing is, but that 10 year bonds got to go up. And eventually the Fed's going to have to stop the free money. They're not going to do it right away for sure. But free money on top of huge spending and taxing, that is not a good policy mix. No, I'm just wondering if we're going to see an economic crisis develop the way we saw a border crisis develop uh, when the Biden administration reversed all of Trump's policies. And on the 10-year, by the way, Larry Lindsay joined me a couple of weeks ago, and he told me on this program that he's expecting the 10-year to be very close to 3 percent by year end. Would yeah. a 3 percent yield on the 10-year be a problem for markets, Larry? Yeah, I mean, look, that would, I think that's a plausible view. Uh, Larry's probably a little more bearish on inflation than I am, although he may be right. I, I'm kind of on the fence there. But yeah, you'll get a correction. Look, here's the thing rising market rates 
don't necessarily slaughter the stock market. In the short run, yes, that will cause corrections. But history shows that if real interest rates are going up because economic growth is going up, and by the way, earnings are off the charts great. That's the biggest driver for stocks right now is fabulous earnings. So rising rates won't necessarily kill the stock market. You'll get corrections along the way. I don't see any chance right now that the Fed is going to shift its target rate anytime this year. One can debate whether they should move forward their 2023 estimates. I mean, I don't know how they're going to get through next year uh, if the economy continues. But then again, a lot of this is going to come down to whether the Democrats want to drive through these policies of high spend, high tax, and high regulate through budget reconciliation. Yes. 51 votes, right? That's the key issue. Uh, I don't think they're going to have an easy time of it. But on the other hand, they may get it. They may get it. I do not expect a serious compromise with the GOP. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that's what they're waiting for. They'd like to have a decision by August, but they could actually get this through reconciliation if they wait and they do it later on in the year. They, they can push it through, Larry. So much for unity, which Joe Biden told us he was going to create unity, bring everybody together. So far, everything he's done is either executive order or along party line. Uh, through reconciliation. Uh, real quick, Larry, before you go, we were talking about China earlier in the show. I'm glad you brought up China. Did we ever fix the situation that 70% of our active ingredients uh, come from China? I'm talking about drugs in ibuprofen, penicillin. They're made in China. Did we ever fix that, or are we still dependent on the CCP for this stuff? Well, look, to a large extent, we're still dependent on some of those raw materials. But of course, our pharmaceutical companies have done a fabulous job with the government uh, in uh, Donald Trump's uh, Operation Warp Speed. But we're reaching a point now where we're going to have to look very carefully at the phase one China deal. How is it working? How is it not working? Where is it working? Where is it not working? I, I just raise this. I, I don't obsess about trade deficits per se. I mean, if we're growing rapidly, we're going to run a trade gap with the rest of the world. But I just will note that because of these short-term stimuli coming out of uh, Washington, D.C., you've got this um, paradoxical view where they want to be tough on China on the one hand, but on the other hand, all these stimmies are causing a tremendous demand for Chinese goods. And that's driving up the trade gap. So it doesn't look yeah. like a great story to me. And at some point, the uh, Biden trade negotiating team, whoever that's going to be, is going to have to take a hard look at that to make sure that U.S. exports are being permitted to flow freely, which was part of the deal. We have to revisit that yep. issue because the trade balance is getting more and more unbalanced. And I want to see what the structure causes of that is. If we can export yeah. to China, fine. But if they're blocking us, not fine. 
Yeah, it's also not fine for Americans to have to rely on uh, the Chinese Communist Party to send us send us the medicines that we need. Uh, something as simple as uh, penicillin and ibuprofen, uh, the raw materials being made in China is unacceptable, and the Biden administration should change that because during the pandemic we were threatened by the Global Times, Xinhua News, telling us maybe we won't send those active ingredients. Yeah, deal with it. This is a major issue, Larry Kudlow. We will see. You today, you know, you got a fantastic show. Breaking news at four o'clock. We'll see you on Fox Business. Cudlow is weekdays, four o'clock on Fox Business. We'll be right back. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Top five most terrifying list. Coming in at number five, we got the big Philly, Joel B, a guy that's averaging 29 points, 10 rebounds, shooting 50% from the field. I call him a 275-pound version of Akeem Olajuwon. Coming in at number four, big Jokic. Not only is he out here giving you 27 points a night, but he's giving you 10 rebounds. And guess what? He's dropping eight dimes, one of the best passing bigs the game has ever seen. Matter of fact, Greg Popovich called him the modern-day Larry Bird. Coming in at number three, a guy from L.A., L.A.'s finest, the Brody, Russell Westbrook, Mr. Triple-Double himself, who is tearing the league up right now. One of the most polarizing figures the game has ever saw. At number one, at number two, the green-eyed assassin, light-skinned brother from the Bay Area who's shooting from the parking lot right now. Give him a wiggle, Steph. He's on my number two. And that number one, the most prolific, efficient scorer of all time, Kevin Durant, two-time finals MVP, a walking bucket, a guy that has zero flaws offensively. That's Big Perk, top five most terrifying players in the NBA today. I respect the list, and you're coming at it from the point of view of a player, and some of that is just a matchup. I got to guard this guy. Like, well, how do you do it? But I disagree with the list, Perk, and let me tell you why. In the modern game, even though Embiid and Jokic, I can't take exception. You can have mine. You are a big, so I get it. But if you're not the dude with the ball in his hand at the end of the game, and I know Jokic can bring the ball up and everything. He ain't a backcourt player then you better have another dude on your team just as good as you who can do that. So it's tough for me to put a big there. It's tough for me to put Westbrook there because he doesn't shoot it or not very good at shooting it from distance. But I'll tell you who would be there, James Harden, who when last seen on a basketball court had as much control over the outcome of a game as anyone I have ever seen. I cannot believe the heights he rose to this year, but... Struggles in the playoffs has, has him five on my list. Okay? <coughs> Steph Curry is four. Steph is the scariest from distance, no doubt. But with the game on the line, actually, the scariest from distance is Damian Lillard, who has hit more clutch shots, almost no matter how you define clutch, since he entered the league than anyone else and can also shoot it from the parking lot. Number three is KD for all the reasons you went into. But... Number one is still LeBron James, who not only can do everything you want on a basketball court. I mean, you get on his free throw shooting, what, it's in the 70s? You're going to get on him? Okay. Yep. Not like in the 50s. Not like Shaq at the free throw line or something. 
But not only that, just his presence on the court has you believing that somehow his team will figure it out. Both ends of the floor. He is still the scariest as of this moment in the imaginations and emotions of basketball fans, which is why you argued with me earlier when I said, hey, from the horse's mouth, LeBron said he's never going to be 100% again. You said, don't believe him. Excuse well, me, one second. Hold one? on, hold on. Yeah, Perf, before you jump in here, because I got to ask Max a question here, because I feel like you just tried to cover your bases there with that little mm -hmm. comment at the end. How could you argue <laughs> the top of the show that he's on the decline mm -hmm. and he's never going to be the same? At this moment, he is on the decline, but now you're saying he's the number one most terrifying player in the NBA. Isn't that a bit hypocritical? Not even in the slightest, Molly, and I'll explain it to you. Please do. What's the adjective you used? Terrifying. Right? Mm. What is terror about? What is scared? What is fear about? Is that about a reality or a perception? Now, the perception can be largely based on reality, but it's really about the way other people are reacting to it emotionally. And that is LeBron James number one still, as is evidenced by the fact that both you and Perk were so strenuously arguing against my point when all I was doing was quoting LeBron. But you still have it fixed in your head that he's still the best. If you have LeBron, you're going to win. Max, Max, I, I'm not even about to go there, but all me and Molly and I said was that you believe what LeBron said. All we said was that we didn't believe that. Yeah. And you took it to other heights and said that he's declining. But that's another, that's another story, okay? I don't have a problem with Damian Lillard being on your list. I actually... It was hard for me to leave him off my list, but if I was talking about the now, because that's what the NBA is about, what have you done for me lately, then I had to take Dame Dollar off the list because Portland hasn't lived up to expectations this season. All right, And when you talk about James Harden, I had to take him off the list because he missed so many games okay. and he still hasn't came back. The same with LeBron James. But now when you disrespect Russell Westbrook, and talk about his lack of shooting, I have a problem with, Max. And here it is. You're a boxing guy, right? And you're damn good at it, okay? You're a boxing analyst, and I love the way that you break down boxing. Max, tell me who is the most ferocious boxer of all time. Well, you're going to say Mike Tyson, right? Okay. I know. I, I, by the way, Perk, I called Westbrook Mike Tyson, you know, kind of mentality. Oh, okay then. So if you're ferocious, that means that you're terrified because that means people are scared of you, okay? That's the first thing. Second thing is that you're going to stop disrespecting the bigs in today's game, okay? Joel and B and Jokic is not your typical bigs of the past, okay? These guys are generational talents. All right, when you talk about late-game situations and putting the ball in their hands, they don't need no one to put the ball in their hands because both of these guys' skill set, they're so physically talented and skilled that they could bring the ball up. They could set up the offense themselves. They could take you off the dribble. They could euro-step you. They could one-leg fade away you. They got the complete package. So I don't look at them as your traditional center. So with you disrespecting my list, talking about Embiid and Jokic shouldn't be on there because the game has changed. No, they have changed with the game, and they have changed the position.
Thanks for watching ESPN on YouTube. For live streaming sports and premium content, subscribe to ESPN+. Plus. Information, photos, blogs, and more. In your car, at work, at home, on your smartphone. And that's it for this week's episode. Add us to your podcatcher or on iTunes now so that you can make sure you never miss out on another second of our wonderful podcast. We would hate for you to miss out. Have a great week, everyone. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.